Hi, and welcome to Make It Make Sense with Sareka Thanendra Dharaman, a podcast that aims to demystify the less-than-transparent publishing industry by talking to authors from historically underrepresented backgrounds. I believe that the more we make sense of how things work on the inside, the less we feel as though we're on the outside. Because learning from other authors, editors and agents that have made sense of their journeys should hopefully inspire many more to embark on their very own. Each week, I'll be asking a new interviewee the things they've made sense of in their careers, as well as anything they'd like to make sense of for fellow writers. Today, we speak with podcast regular Kasim Ali. I spoke to Kasim in episode two as he shared his own publishing journey with us as Good Intentions, his debut novel launched in the US and the UK. Today we speak to him in his role as assistant editor at Cornerstone, an imprint of Penguin Random House. And let me tell you, we get into it. Amongst the current spate of articles in the bookseller about editor, agent and author burnout, my conversation with Kasim sits right in this landscape. Today's episode is for publishing hopefuls, but also for those who want to learn the ins and outs of how a book goes from submission to acquisition, or the much less fun route, submission to the multitude of reasons an editor could reject a manuscript. We make sense of one of our favourite topics on this podcast, rejection, as well as the enormous expectation placed on non-white authors to produce novels that are political and expositional, and the role that editors may play in this. Kasim, as always, is honest and raw in this episode. He helps us once again bring transparency to processes within the industry and the taboo topic of salaries for those that work within it. We dive into what it means to live and survive on current pay scales in comparison to his peers within various other industries. I want to thank Kasim for being so frank and discussing topics that are rarely broached. I say this knowing how tough it is to speak about issues such as the types of books that are being acquired currently, expectations on historically excluded authors, as well as salaries within the publishing industry. If you enjoyed this episode and learned as much as I did, please make sure to let Kasim know what it meant for you. Hi Kasim, welcome back to Make It Make Sense. Hey, Zareka. Thank you for having me on again. I think this is my third episode. I know. So the last two episodes that you featured in, episode two was um, speaking as a writer for your debut novel, Good Intentions, and episode three was all the content that I couldn't fit into episode two um, because we had a two-hour conversation. Uh, But today we get to speak about your role as assistant editor. I wanted to start by asking what a typical day for you looks like as an assistant editor. Sure. Um, so to give everyone a little bit of context, so I'm an assistant editor at Penguin Random House and I work for Cornerstone, which is one of the more commercial divisions. So uh, we have a literary side to us, but you know the majority of the, the money-making books, as it were, are very commercial sort of crime and thriller books that sell an insane amount and sort of celebrity memoirs. Um, I specifically work on the science fiction and fantasy side of stuff, mm-hmm. which is very interesting to people who know about the book because <laughs> can't quite, uh, I don't know, understand how those two things fit together <laughs> in their brain, but they kind of do. Um, so that's kind of where I work. A typical day, I'm going to be really annoying here and tell you that there isn't really a typical day. I can tell you some mm-hmm. of the stuff that I do on a day-to-day basis which is, you know, I'm constantly checking. So there's this thing called Biblio, which is a very um, old looking uh, publishing system, which is where you put up um, uh, all your books and they kind of exist on this system. And it's responsible for feeding data out to Amazon and Waterstones to also kind of like our salespeople. And that is like a really important tool that I'm Mm -hmm. using all the time. Like it's constantly open. So, you know, you're updating um, really small stuff like keywords, which is like this teeny tiny microscopic thing that is really, really important because it tells retailers where your book sits. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this tiny thing on Biblio that actually has like enormous um, sort of, yeah, impacts um, where your book is. Yeah, doing stuff like updating the description or the author bio or like just checking you know, really small things that kind of have that kind of really big resonance on the on, on the internet and mm-hmm. books online. So Biblio is like a massive part of it. I'm also doing like lots of 
as an assistant editor, I'm doing a lot of chasing. I'm doing a lot of chasing mm-hmm. people in production who are running costings for books. So for example, the science fiction and fantasy world does a lot of exclusive editions. So you might have seen them at like Waterstones or mm-hmm. there's a bookshop called Goldsboro in London, which does these exclusive editions. And they, they're kind of different from the sort of original hardback as it were because they have like colorful sprayed edges which is when Mm. the ends of the papers are like a different kind of color Mm -hmm. or they might have an exclusive content or they might have a different cover or like end papers which is when you open a hardback the back of the front cover like the wooden bit is like like different designs um all of those things have to be costed so if a bookshop reaches out to us and they do reach out to us quite often, Goldsboro, Forbidden Planet, Waterstones and ask for an exclusive edition, that's quite a lot of work because I have to really coordinate uh, with production quite a lot mm-hmm. to get those costumes running and see whether it works from a financial perspective. Are we making enough money to be able mm-hmm. to sign off on these? Um, so a lot of chasing on that kind of stuff, but also chasing on like very normal stuff, just sending a book to print Um if you know a lot of our authors are in America, so we do a lot of tip-ins, which is when we send um, we send pages out to them for them to sign instead of hold books because that's quite expensive. And then those pages come back to us, and then mm-hmm. we, we literally tip in a page. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, for a lot of American authors, that's what we do. So those those are the kind of things I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. A lot of chasing, a lot of just making sure things are running really smoothly. But then every so often I'll be doing like really cool stuff. Like next week I'm going to London Book Fair for like two days, mm. like a bunch of international rights people and literary agents who have come over to London to just talk to them about what kind of books they're offering out and mm-hmm. what is it that we're looking for and can we join up. Um, that's very cool. I also get to read a lot of submissions, which is not as cool as you might think it is because <laughs> um, we get sent quite quite a lot because we're essentially penguin doesn't have another dedicated science fiction and fantasy place like it is mm-hmm. where i work and so we get everything mm. we're getting like 10 books a week that and these are like 10 full books that have to be read just in case they might be good and we don't want them to sell mm. um so that can take up like quite a lot of my time but yeah it's like a really varied role i like to think of like editorial and i might get into this a little a little bit later but I like to think of editorial as being almost like project management. Mm-hmm. Just the editing you're doing, you're like doing kind of everything. You're strategizing, you're thinking about how the book looks, you're talking to publicity mm. marketing, sales, rights, art, <laughs> every department you can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, the role of an you know, assistant editor or editor is, is, is really varied. We, we do so much um, mm. that I don't think people really know. Mm-hmm. It's and and it. I guess that also gives you so much more context when you went through it as an author, having had to have done it, even if it's in a different section that you work, um, whether it's science fiction or not. But as an author, to know all those different processes would have helped um, in that regard as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, sometimes to my detriment because I just <laughs> <too> much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, so you said you read a lot of submissions. Are you sent submissions directly by agents or, uh, are you just, it comes into the office and you're reading? So, um, literary agents kind of know who certain people are. So mm-hmm. they know that my line manager and I are science fiction and fantasy people. So they will send it. Mostly it comes to my line manager because she's got, she's been working in this industry longer than I have. She knows a lot more people than I do. And so they send it directly to her and then she'd mm-hmm. hold on to me. But as I've sort of been working here for the past two years, I've my presence has grown in the industry. So I've mm-hmm. been making my own connections and people do sometimes send me stuff. But the majority comes to her. But yeah, literary agents will, a really good literary agent, which is, I think, the majority of them, mm-hmm. they will know when they read a book, like, oh, this editor at Hachette or this editor at HarperCollins or at Penguin is going to really like this book. So let me make a list. So for example, mm-hmm. when my book went out on submission. My agent sent me a list of maybe like 20 publishers, I think, mm-hmm. uh, 20, uh, 20 sort of editorial people. Um, and because I was in the industry, she asked me if I, if I, if there was someone on there that I wanted it to go to. And it was a very robust uh, list of people because she knows 
people's tastes and what they're going to like and what they're going to mm-hmm. respond so yeah it doesn't submissions rarely come into the general office so to speak mm. um, they come directly on email to an editor okay and then from there can you help us understand the process for editors that wish to acquire a book yeah 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 so uh let's say you read a book and you think it's incredible and you're like oh my god i love this book it's the the best thing ever uh, what a time um you then well what happens in cornerstone and i do have to say that i think it's slightly different for like other mm-hmm. places just just in terms of how people work but i think overall what happens is you have a conversation with your other editors so you take it to like an editorial meeting and you kind of talk about it and that meeting is not so much you pitching the book, but you just kind of raising it and saying, this is what I really liked about it. Did anybody else have a chance to read it? What do you think? And you're kind of working out the details of your publication plan in that meeting. Mm-hmm. And so the other editors would suggest like maybe these authors for quotes, or maybe it's less of a Waterstones book. Maybe it's more of an Amazon book. And that's like a big distinction that we now have to make because Amazon is responsible for mm-hmm. so, so many sales of books. Um, and other kind of really interesting stuff like that. And then if in that editorial meeting, it's decided kind of by everyone that you should take it to acquisitions, that's like a bigger meeting where you have sales, finance, marketing, publicity, um, kind of members from each department. They will be there and you kind of have to then pitch it. Mm -hmm. So you take everything you've got from your editorial meeting, you bring it to the acquisitions meeting, and then you essentially pitch your book and you're not just pitching this is a good book you're pitching here's my plan to publish it so the date that I'm gonna I think it should come out on but you don't have to be so specific on the date but like roughly the month the year um these are the other books in the same space that are kind of coming out so this is our competition these are the books that I think it compares strongly to these are the authors I would want to reach out to here's kind of my publishing plan like here's the publicity stuff that I'm thinking about and this is like two years before the book comes out Mm -hmm. you're having to think about all of these things you're having to think of like a plan to publish the book before you can actually publish the book Mm. and then what, what what will have happened before that meeting is you will have sent an email to all of those people in the acquisitions meeting uh, the manuscript and the sort of agent's pitch and your thoughts and hopefully someone will have read it most mostly like loads of people have read it and then they will sort of yeah they'll come in and they'll say this is what I think of this book mm-hmm. maybe they'll come in and say like sales can sometimes come in and say I think you're wrong this is more of a supermarket book as opposed to a Waterstones book or I think it's more of an online book as opposed to a supermarkets book mm-hmm. etc cetera, et cetera. Uh, publicity will come in and say I really like this author they've got a good platform this is where I think I'd put them sometimes they can come and say this author has absolutely no platform and we don't know how we would pitch them which is can make for an interesting conversation mm-hmm. you kind of gather all these opinions and then it's kind of decided in that meeting are you going to offer for that book or are you going to let it go then let's say you've got the green light and you've got the offer um, the permission to offer sorry then you have to run a profit and loss document <laughs> So this is where things get a little bit Mm -hmm. more businessy. So you Mm -hmm. have to coordinate with sales and marketing and publicity and production and finance. And basically you have to put in, this is how many copies we think we're going to sell. This is how much resource we're going to put into it. So resource can mean anything from like editorial time to proofreading uh, fees to how much marketing spend you're going to put on it. You put all of that into this kind of, uh, matrixy thing <laughs> and it will finance will then spit out a number at you and mm. say this is how much you can offer so if you're offering I don't know something like £20,000 for a book that has come because sales have said it's going to sell 5,000 hardbacks and maybe 20,000 paperbacks and marketing mm. has said oh we're going to put in uh, £3,000 for marketing spend mm. okay. that's, that's very simplistic that's yeah. very we're looking at it but it's kind of that very businessy accounting side of it where you have to because at the end of the day you have to make enough money to buy the next book mm-hmm. um then so let's say you've got your your profit and loss doc and you've sent that to your kind of your boss basically and your boss has given you permission to offer you then go in and offer but you don't offer your max you offer your minimum mm-hmm 
because you need space to mm, negotiate negotiate and go up. So if your PL comes out at a maximum of say twenty thousand pounds, you'll go in and offer five thousand pounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so because here's what happens is if I offer five thousand pounds on a book, that literary agent will email every single editor and say, mm-hmm. I have an offer on the table which then makes other people perk up and think, oh my God, I like this book. I need to move quicker. Then they might come back and maybe one of them says, I'll offer 10,000 pounds. Then that agent will offer around and say, I've got a higher offer than yours. What are you doing? And they won't mm-hmm. talk about it. So then you almost start playing this like mm-hmm. cat and mouse game. Yeah. You're <laughs> trying to figure out how high can I go so that yeah. it's higher than the other publisher, but not so high that it ruins the profit and loss document. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it goes too high and you have to pull out. You just have mm-hmm. to pull out because your numbers don't work. Sometimes no one else offers. So you get it at that very minimum. Mm-hmm. Numbers that you offer £5,000, no one else has offered. They have to say yes. Mm-hmm. Some agents will come back and ask you to improve your offer. But if they can't give you proof that other publishers mm. are interested, you're, not, you're under no obligation to improve your offer because you're the only one. What is the proof that an agent can give you without telling you who the, or do they, are they able to tell you who else is offering well so we have to kind of trust them we have to kind of trust them and i think editors get very good at knowing Mm. if an agent is kind of fibbing a little Mm -hmm. bit but agents have to fib in order to get the best deal for their authors Mm -hmm. and by that i don't mean outright lying i just mean that sometimes agents will say this is getting a lot of interest across the board and Mm -hmm. i kind of know that that means one publisher has come back and said i'm really enjoying reading this Mm -hmm. okay they have to kind of dramatize it to pull you in and i think part of that is also because agents understand that editors are so busy yeah they have to pull Uh, the attention somehow as well yeah absolutely um so Okay, let's say you offer, let's say you get into an auction. That's really exciting because it's also (laughs) nerve-wracking from an editor's perspective because you're like, oh my God, am I going to get this book book into? Depending on how big the auction is, you will either do one of two things. Number one, the the number one scenario is it's a handful of publishers. You offer £5,000. The agent will then collate everybody's first offers and come back and tell you what the kind of floor is for them okay so let's say they say the floor is ten thousand. so then you go in at 12 and a half a couple of other publishers drop out uh the agent comes back and says the floor is fifteen thousand. it's Mm -hmm. between you and another publisher you offer 20 they offer 25 the author goes for 25 Mm. sad story or it's the other way around and you offer highest and they come to you Mm -hmm. in between in in that kind of process the author will also meet the editors. So mm-hmm. mostly it happens on Zoom now, but actually I think as we're kind of coming out of COVID, it's happening more and more in person. So that's your opportunity to kind of present a human face to the author and mm-hmm. kind of basically sell yourself as the best editor for the book. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what happens, and it kind of it happens like, like nearly all the time actually, is um, the editor will be so good that they will be the underbidder and they will see mm-hmm. that. So they will bid literally less money than uh, other publishers, but the author will have met them and like them mm. so much they'll take that lower offer mm-hmm. because they know they've got someone who's really passionate about their book. Um, in bigger auctions, not only do you have to do that author meeting, but you also have to br- put a presentation together. Mm-hmm. That can take a lot of resource because you have to make it look really nice. You have to put a lot of stuff into it. Mm-hmm. You have to really think deeply about the kind of publishing plan you're going to put into this book. And it can really hurt when you put all that work in and the author goes to someone else because mm. then you've just wasted like, you know, three days mm-hmm. putting this whole thing together. Um, but it, it is a thing that happens and you kind of have to do it. Mm. Um, and then let's say you acquire a book. Hey, then you have to do the contract stuff, which is very boring. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. But um, But while you're doing the contract stuff, you start having those like early conversations with your author about editorial notes in the book and like what Mm -hmm. do you want to change and what do you think is going to work better um Mm. and then yeah then the real work kind of begins okay and going a couple of steps back before um before you get the green light to offer if an editor decides they don't want the book and they want to turn down the book I think by how you've explained it it's clear that there are many reasons why books 
are not acquired and why they're turned down. But I think it's interesting because that's also something we touched on last time, but riders especially don't have so much transparency as to why a book can be great, but not bought at the time that it goes out on submission. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why there are so many different reasons that don't necessarily account to the writing, might account to the writing, but may not, um, that writers might not be aware of? Yeah, yeah, of course. My God, yeah. Um, so I, some of the submissions that I've rejected have been uh, it's publishing in the autumn in America and I, as the UK, which is the smaller country, you want to follow the US because the US mm-hmm. do like kind of big publicity stuff. And you want to make sure that you're jumping on that energy. So you might have to turn down a book you really like because you've mm-hmm. read too many books in autumn um, and you've kind of filled your quota. Or it's too similar to another book that you're publishing in that same time. If it's a British author and the UK publisher gets to determine when the book is coming out, it could be, again, my quota is too full or there's a similar book coming out or it might just be sometimes literally it might be we don't think it's going to sell enough it's a really good book Mm -hmm. but we we can't see the audience and sometimes what happens then is it's a conversation actually about whether or not you're the right editor for it Mm -hmm. so I've turned down books where I can see that the writing is good and the book is good and I'm enjoying it but I actually can't think of how I'm going to publish it Mm -hmm. I can't think of how I'm going to push it above all the other books that are coming out at the Mm -hmm. same time um, how am I going to get this author what they deserve and that can be really hard because you're sitting here with the book that you really like but you just can't think of the best way to publish it mm. and that just means you're not the right editor for it and you hope in your rejection that another editor will pick it up mm-hmm. um, and then sometimes as you say it is just that the writing didn't vibe sometimes mm-hmm. I read a book and I I can see that other people might like it but it's not working for me personally like I'm not getting most of the time what I find and this is really interesting is um because I'm a very I'm kind of like a character guy and so if I can't get behind the character if I can't understand the characters like motivations Mm -hmm. and that doesn't necessarily mean they have to be like a good person Mm -hmm. if I can't understand them if I can't get behind them and root for them then I'm going to turn that down Mm -hmm. and the reason for that is is because I don't think I'm the right editor for it Mm -hmm not speaking to me in that kind of way then it's not for me and because publishing a book like that's 18 to 24 months of my life Mm -hmm. Um, I have to put so much of myself into it and while it is a business and sometimes we do publish books that we don't necessarily like because we can see that they would sell really well most of the time you're doing it because you feel a certain passion for the book Mm -hmm. and if you're not feeling that if it's not grabbing you you as an editor you don't want to devote two years of your life to Mm -hmm. publishing behind and also it's a massive disservice to the author as well um i ironically i I saw an agent who had rejected good intentions when i sent it to them um like a while ago and i didn't ask them about it but they sort of were like oh yeah you you have that good intentions book and i was like yeah it just came out and they were like oh yeah well you know i'm sorry i rejected it and then they sort of explained themselves which i didn't, I didn't think they needed to do because i work in publishing so i kind mm, of you understand <clears throat> they were like oh the writing is good and i did enjoy the book but i i couldn't see an audience for it um and because mm. they didn't see an audience for it and that's not necessarily to put any blame on that agent mm. it's just to say that it didn't line up with who they were at that time which is yeah we're all human we all have different opinions and tastes but if they couldn't if they couldn't figure out how they were going to sell it there was Mm -hmm. no point in them signing me up even if they liked because nothing would have happened um so when authors get rejected you know i've been there i've been rejected many times did i tell you this on the on the other podcast (laughs) i I don't know i don't know if rejection was a theme on the last one (laughs) But I wrote 21 books before yes. this Yes, yes. So I, did, I did say it. Um, so I'm very well versed in, yeah. in the world of rejection. It's not, sometimes it is because you're not ready. Sometimes it's because they're not ready. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. And I think some writers get really frustrated with that because they're like, if the book is good, let's go. But actually, I think, and I might be touching on something I said in, in an earlier podcast episode, but publishing is a business. Yeah. 
and it's about making it it's about making money and i think people get a bit uncomfortable with that fact but actually that is that is what it's about mm-hmm. and so there are so many reasons my god like yeah. you know you have too many books uh there's too many similar books coming out at the same time you have a very similar book coming out at the same time mm-hmm. the writing's not hitting for me i can't see where this would sell maybe this is a supermarket book but i know that supermarkets aren't taking that kind of book mm-hmm. or that slot is filled by someone else there's so much there's mm-hmm. so much you know, and i recently the other day i had to turn down a book that i loved i loved that book and i had to turn it down because it was too small mm. uh, and it wasn't going to sell enough copies to make it worth buying unless we literally paid nothing and we're not in the business of paying mm-hmm. we pay advances and so um and it, and it also became a conversation then with my boss about like even if we did pay nothing and we took it on we would still be paying something which is time and mm. resource and mm-hmm not mine but like everyone else's yeah, yeah. You know, like I'm asking somebody in marketing to work on this book that's not going to sell many copies when they could be using that time and resource for like another book that is going to go on and sell mm-hmm. more copies and that can sound kind of brutal I think to write mm-hmm. they're like how could you commodify you know and commercialize my book like this but in truth that is kind of what we're doing and mm-hmm. that is kind of what writers want because otherwise you wouldn't be submitting your book to an agent you would just be writing it and putting it up maybe on the internet for free mm-hmm. or um and I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to earn money from what you write I don't think mm-hmm. there's anything wrong with that and I completely reject this notion of like oh I write just because I write no maybe we we write because we love it but also we kind of want people to read it and in that yeah. is the idea that we want to make money from it that's completely fine but I think writers might have to remember that when they get rejected. It's mm. not always just about you. It's about mm-hmm. so much. Yeah. Yeah. Which it's, it's good to hear those things because I think we also touched on this, that you often don't have that context and that knowledge of the decisions that go on in inside those meetings. And so it does just feel so personal when it's a no, but it's great to know that there is context to that no, and there's multiple reasons. Um, uh, why it can come back as a no. Um, I wanted to ask you what um, a difference is that you've seen in the industry from when you started to now, positive or negative? Um, I think the a real, a real positive thing, and also it's it's like an interestingly negative thing, is that I am seeing publishers take on authors that maybe they wouldn't have taken on before. Mm-hmm. And by that, I I do have to be honest in saying that I am talking about race. Mm-hmm. And so I'm seeing publishers take non-white authors on and publish them and give them advances that are, you know, equatable. Equatable? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is that a word? <laughs> it is, but now you're making me doubt it. <laughs> Let's say you're a published author, and if you're doubting it, and and an editor, and an editor, and an editor, happens sometimes. Um, (laughs) Advances that are a similar level to white authors, and publishing Mm -hmm. publishing them in like a really big way, which is great, and I'm really happy about that. Mm -hmm. But I think, and here's the negative side to it, and this is just my personal opinion: is um, number one, I think there is still this idea that every non-white author has to be, has to have written something really important. Mm-hmm. You know, every book that comes out by a non-white author, it can't just be a really fun book about mm. like a rom-com. It has to be a really important book about racial trauma. Yeah. They have to represent the people, every single person of the community that they come from. Mm. Um, and that still happens. And it mm. happens in the publishing of it. It's so interesting to me that like, there are certain books that come out and they're being pushed in this way of like, this is a really important book about what it's like to be an ex-woman or an ex-man in today's like modern Britain. Mm. And then I read it and I'm just like, oh, this is just like a really fun like rom-com. Why yeah. are we why are we positioning it as this like I don't know, like polemic on modern Britain <laughs> and its relationship <laughs> with race, right? It's really strange. Yeah. Um, and I think that setting those authors up for failure and I think it's also kind of boxing us in and only making us it's kind of giving this impression that we can only write about one thing but actually the truth is is uh much like white people we too fall in love 
and <coughs> we have loads of things that we want to we want to write about and that's that's okay and they don't have to be yeah. positioned in this kind of like massive way where it's like a really important book sometimes mm. it's just a book and that's okay um and I think that's maybe the disconnect is that a writer is just writing a romance novel or a love story or a coming of age that is just pulling on their own references it's not a political statement it's not a reflection of you know they're not trying to as you say make a big statement on the world as it is it is just their world and they're just trying to put out their version of what is out there but then the disconnect is then how that's marketed yeah absolutely and I think you know that always comes back to me for like what editors are working on it who are the people working mm. where did they come from because if they were non-white themselves or they were from that kind of specific community maybe they would understand then that this isn't like a polemic about race this is just a really fun book yeah um and what the, what's that what that is doing is it is kind of making readers expect that from those books right so what i'm seeing you know sometimes is when a really fun kind of and i want to use the term frothy here but i want to make sure to be clear that it's not insulting mm-hmm. um, when i say frothy i mean a really fun escapist read that doesn't make you really think about anything you just have a lot mm. those books are then being critiqued from the lens of like critical race theory almost yeah. And it's like, but why, why are you doing this yeah. to the book? Like, you don't have to do this to this book. This is just a book. And that doesn't happen to white authors. Mm. Um, nobody is turning around to Giorgio Moyes and saying, why didn't you write about white supremacy in this book about love and romance? Like, no one's doing that. Right? <laughs> um, so there's, there's that problem. I think also, there's also this interesting, um, and I could talk about this one forever, but I'm going to keep it short. There's this, interesting conversation happening now about can or rather do white editors edit non-white authors to the same level that they Mm. edit white authors Mm -hmm. and that isn't necessarily me asking the question are these are these editors racist and therefore actively holding back I think the question more is do they have the confidence to go in and say to a non-white author I don't think this works mm. or are they too scared that they mm. being called out for being racist? Mm-hmm. And I think actually the latter is true. I think editors are scared to edit. And so they just let books out. And what that does is it, 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 it kind of cuts authors' careers off at their knees because thankfully my editors did edit me and they edited me just as well as I've seen white editors edit white authors and I learned so much from that. It turned me into mm. a better writer and it turned good intentions into a better book. You're not giving those authors that same chance. You're not mm. giving them the same chance to learn. You're not giving their book the same chance that you're giving white authors. And I think mm-hmm. some editors might actually feel like they're doing like the better thing. They, they might feel like, oh, do you know what? Actually, we're doing the good thing here because we're not questioning their lived experience mm-hmm. by asking that. But no, you're not. Actually, you're, you're not giving them the thing that you would give. Yeah um and those those two things how you market a book how you edit a book those go mm. hand in hand and I think it's a larger conversation of like we're you know we're publishing these non-white authors way more than we ever did before but we're still not there yet we're mm. still not there yet and my belief will always always be that we should maybe fire some of the people on the top and replace them I mean, <laughs> I know we can't. Statement, strong statement from Kasim I, I know it's never going to happen, but <laughs> my God, I wish you could. Um, I I agree, but I, to an extent, it it's a little bit sometimes frustrating to know all those things. That those are positives and they are negatives. But I also think that all of this occurs. That kind of um unfair expectation on all these books from non-white authors to deliver so in so many different ways and also this lag of editors kind of it, it all speaks to the lack of diversity and the lack of those people also holding those roles so as you say if there's more non-white editors then if it is that a white editor fears that they're pushing the boundary or pushing the marker too far and are scared to comment or scared to edit in something that pertains to race, 
if there were other editors out there and there was a sea of editors that come from those backgrounds or are from marginalized communities or whatever it is that also uh, it's also a bigger pool for authors to feel safe to submit to as well and so it does have a lot to do with the people that are sitting in those roles as well as people that are that have the opportunity to edit to not feel scared to just say I am coming from a perspective where I don't understand everything, but I am just going to put it in and you just tell me if it's a yes or a no, or it makes sense or it doesn't make sense. And we just have a conversation about it. But um, I think there's definitely a lag and that's why non-white authors are held to such a different standard when their books are published and why the analysis and the critique is uh, so extreme at times because yes, yeah, sometimes you just want to enjoy that book and say, great, that comes from a background and a family that I understand. And that was a great book rather than, you know, why this part of race or this part of um, uh, this theme wasn't addressed as well. Um, but hopefully, do you think that that lag is changing? Do you see, I know it's slow and everyone says publishing is slow, but do you see it as a positive and a change that isn't that slow or you do think it's it still needs to pick up speed um I'm like a radical so I think it's not fast enough mm. <laughs> and I will always fear for the authors who are being published under these sort of situations because you work so hard and then you do get published but then maybe you don't get published in the way that you deserve and mm. then what does that do for your career because I, I'm also aware of the fact that Yes, we are publishing more non-white authors, but I have also heard, you know, conversations where editors have said this white author, you know, their last book didn't sell so well, but it's a relationship and we should continue publishing mm. them. But I don't hear those conversations for non-white authors mm -hmm. that, in, you know, those conversations are about, oh, their last book didn't sell. Why would we buy the next one? And, you know, they, so there's still blocks in the way. There are still... Mm things that we have to jump over um and so i do worry for the authors who are being published under these under these circumstances because what does that mean for their careers so for me it will never be quick enough mm. but i do have to say that you know the fact that you're talking to me on both of my sides like as a published author and as somebody who works in the publishing industry i think that kind of speaks a little bit to the progress the fact that I am here mm. and that, that that is a really good thing I just you know as I say as a radical I think they should be more and I think also publishing met, might need to have a conversation with itself about and when I say might it definitely should about the fact that you know diversity hires at a lower level rarely migrate to middle management mm. what is that block what's happening there um and also about like the recent kind of the recent kind of data that we've had on how many people leave the publishing industry, mm -hmm. you know, they enter these internship roles for like six months, nine months, a year, 18 months, whatever it might be. And then at the end of it, or even halfway through, they just sort of pull out and they say, this isn't for me. Mm. And we're not, we're not dissecting that enough. We're not having that conversation. I think retaining your staff is a conversation that publishing almost like refuses to have. Mm. And I think they know what the answer is. And the answer is, is that, you know, it's still very hard. It's still very hard to be in those situations where you're the only non-white person in a room of 20 people um, and you're, you feel the weight of it. You feel mm. that kind of responsibility of like, not only do I have to serve my people, mm -hmm. I have to almost like serve everybody because I'm mm. the only one in this room. So I have to serve everyone. But then you're also like, I don't want to be the loud guy. I don't want to be the guy who speaks too much about race because then they yeah. will label you as that and they will label you as like a troublemaker mm. if you if you talk too much. Um, that's, that's a heavy responsibility to bear. And I think mm -hmm. the emotional weight of that, along with the whole fact that, you know, publishers doesn't pay as well, which we'll get onto later, um, is really hard to bear, especially mm. when you look around and you see your friends in like, I don't know, this is very stereotypical of me, but like you see like a friend in IT earning three times what you earn and they get to just sign off from work. They get to just do their yeah. job. And afterwards they're like done and they just seem so much more content. And you're like, yeah. what are you doing this for? Because <laughs> you love it. That's the other side of it. You love uh, the books that you're champion, championing. You love the industry, you love books and writing. And um, obviously you're a writer yourself. But 
that is a lot of weight and emotional weight that you have to carry. And I think that's the problem when you're one of the only non-white person in a room that people don't consider there is so much pressure on you by just walking into the room and your responses, the way you handle yourself. And it'd be great to pack that room differently so that, you know, the weight isn't on that one person's shoulder. Let's move on to the three things you help make sense of, two that you've learned on your own journey, and the third is something that you'd like to make sense of for fellow publishing hopefuls. So your first is nice and easy that the industry, I'm guessing, is very competitive. Yes. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I got into publishing, and hopefully by that you can take, your listeners can take something from it. Mm-hmm. Um my entry into publishing was not like a lot of other people's. So a lot of people that I've spoken to in similar roles to mine have said I did unpaid work experience for several weeks and I worked really hard to get in, into it. And I did this internship and I did this internship and I did this internship and I went to this networking event, like properly in it. Mm-hmm. I worked at PC World after university for six months and I said, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I don't want to be a teacher. What can I do? I Googled, how do I get into publishing? I applied yeah. for two internship roles and I got one of them so my entry into it was like really simple and people Mm. are blown away by that because it took it took so much more of other people Mm -hmm. but then when my internship finished I interviewed for about 12 to 15 jobs and I didn't get a single one and I had to move back home and I kept interviewing kept interviewing kept interviewing got nothing uh, applied to so many jobs then got a job as an editorial assistant at a super small indie near Nottingham. Mm. Um, hated it. And then basically between January 2018 and August 2019, I applied for over 100 jobs and I interviewed for 18 of them. Wow. It was my 19th interview <laughs> that I got this job that I am currently in. Um And it was really tough. It was really tough. I was taking the train down to London and hoping beyond hope that I would get something. And then it just never happened. And that sort of despair that you feel. So, and and the funny thing is, is I I never really tied these two things together before, but like I was going through writing rejection and job Mm, rejection. At the same time. Huge swathes at the same time. Just like so many. My inbox was like a terrible place to be in. Um, It is super competitive and it's only gotten more competitive. I was talking to somebody from HR a while ago and they told me that for an editorial assistant role, they used to see between like kind of like over 500 applicants before COVID. Now they see over 1000 applicants. Oh, wow. So it's like doubled in size, which is insane. And it's just so many. And, and the thing that that HR person told me was it is so difficult for them to kick people out because everybody can do the job. Mm. How do you whittle down? Yeah, a, that's true. How do you whittle down a thousand plus applicants, mm. eight people for interview? I don't know. It's not an enviable job. And they have to read so much and they have to read mm. cover letters and CVs and they have to make really quick decisions like, if they read your cover letter and you're just not vibing with them, they have to shuck it. They have, they just have to throw it away mm-hmm. uh, because it's just too much. And they can't, they can't evaluate you as a problem yeah. at that point. Um, and it, that's a really hard thing to hear. And, you know, makes me kind of sick to my stomach when I think of that many people applying. I mm. like, imagine like, I remember being told that 800 people had applied for my job. Wow. So, 799 people didn't get this job. Mm. That's insane to me. Mm. And what makes me better than those 799 people? I have no idea. Mm. Um, and what I really want to impart here is like, don't let, it, don't let it put you off, but also don't let the rejections put you down, I think. Uh, but I think there's also a part of me that is kind of like, 
I kind of want to take every single person who is like a publishing hopeful mm. and I want to shake them a little bit <laughs> and say, do not turn this into your entire personality. Mm. Do not let it take over you mm-hmm. because it is an insanely competitive industry. It's really hard to get into, really hard to move around once you're in it. Um, and it shouldn't become your entire thing. You are not just a publishing hopeful, quote unquote, mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. with so much more going on. And I don't want to put people off. I don't want people to think I can't get into publishing because he's just told me that a thousand plus people apply for like one job. But I do want to give them the reality of that, the content. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're getting rejected, it's probably got nothing to do with you. It's probably got something mm-hmm. to do with the fact that the hiring manager at the time was like maybe just not in the mood to receive your cover- covering letter or there's like a tiny mistake in there or you phrased something a little bit that just they were like, okay, fine, not you, moving mm. on. Um, and if you are so lucky to get to an interview stage, what I really want to impart to people is, and this took me a really long time to learn when I was applying and interviewing and applying and interviewing. If you get to interview stage, 100% you can do that job. Mm. There's no if or but about it. You can 100% do that job. <laughs> it comes down to vibes. Can you, are you vibing with that person? Do they think that you're going to fit with their team? Do they think that they're going to be able to work with you well? That's what it comes down to. And it's really hard to say that because I'm aware that there are a lot of quiet people out there, mm-hmm. shy and anxious, and that your interview persona is not who you are at all. Like you're, you're an incredible person outside of an interview, but you're really nervous in an interview. So you're shaky and your voice is trembling and you're maybe... Mm-hmm panicked and your mind goes blank that's not who you are Mm. that is what it comes down to especially for those entry-level jobs especially for those those lower tier jobs uh because you can do the job i promise you you get to an interview stage you can do the job but Mm. the person hiring knows that oh these eight people can do the job which one of them am i going to like working Mm. so i'm not really sure what my advice here is because i half of me wants to say don't give up. You'll get there. But the other part of me is like, no, maybe give up for a little bit. Maybe find who you are outside of publishing. Maybe accept that maybe this isn't something that will happen for you right now. Go do something else. Don't let it Mm -hmm. because I let it consume me. Mm -hmm. 18 months or like 19 months. I can't, I don't really remember, but those 18, 19 months that I was applying and applying and applying, it consumed the Mm. hell out of me. It was all I could think about. I cried when I got rejected a couple of times because I really thought I'd got those jobs to those mm. interviews and then they never happened. Um, I felt so awful about myself. It really chips away at your self-belief. like belief. It makes you mm. think you're a bad person somehow, weirdly. It makes you think you're just terrible at your job. Like Everything gets stripped away from you if you mm. just invest too much of yourself into this journey. Um and I know that it's quite hard to take that from somebody who got here because maybe people are thinking it's easy for you to say that with your cushy job at Penguin. A, it's not that cushy. And B, <laughs> um, it's the fact that I got here that I think I can I can kind of say that. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult. And I think you need to be really sure about what it is that you want because, and I'll get, I'll get to this in my second one, but publishing is not an easy place to work in. It's mm. quite difficult and made more difficult if you are a you know non-white person or you're a non-white woman or whatever minority you want to put in there it's very very difficult when you are one of those people because of the aforementioned stuff about feeling that responsibility of like you know representing an entire community Mm. um sorry i feel like this is a bit somber but i really want to be honest about it yeah and i also think it's helpful um to know context always because I think rejection or yeah rejection in particular is worse when you can't put it to something else and you immediately put it to yourself and it does sound somber but it doesn't sound um, uninspiring because there are so many reasons that you could get a no and you persisted through all of not that I think everyone should, that should be the go-to, but you are an example of someone who persisted through multiple uh, job interviews and rejections 
even while you were getting rejections for your book. So it's you you had a mass coming at you. <laughs> <laughs> you like built a cave of just rejection where you just had like pop-ups of emails coming through saying no for things. But it's good to know that there's light at the other side and that there's also context to all those rejections. And even with whether it was your writing or uh, the jobs that you were applying to, there's context that there's a reason. It's not just you. There's so many other reasons, like you've said time and time again. And I think it's really notable to say that, yeah, that you should be able to step away and come back to it because if it's impacting you in that way, that it's really diminishing yourself and diminishing your character by receiving an external email, then it is a time to step back and reassess and then go back into it. Because I think that's important to not put that wholly on yourself. Um, so I think it's really important and context adds to all of that, that people go into an industry, especially people that come from marginalized backgrounds. It is hard. Everyone knows you work twice as hard. That's not a cliched saying it, it is the truth. And so it's, uh, it's easy to say it, but much better to go in knowing why that is the case. And I think that's all you're giving us is that context. Um, and the second thing you wanted to make sense of was that editorial isn't everything. Yes. So <laughs> I am an assistant editor. So for me, editorial is everything. It's my job. But <laughs> what I want people to understand is that I know quite a few people who tried to get into publishing through editorial and couldn't get anywhere because it's editorial is the most competitive mm -hmm. environment in like department of publishing. So they kind of stopped and then went in through production or sales or marketing or publicity or rights or finance or the bibliographic department or whatever department you want to think of. There's so many. Mm. And then they found that they enjoyed that instead. Mm. And so the, the thing that I want to impart here is we maybe less so now with like the advent of Twitter. But when I started thinking about publishing as a job, when I did that little Google search, I was like, yeah, I'm going to apply for the editorial traineeship. Like mm. why don't I apply for publicity or marketing? Like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> but actually the truth is, is I feel like I maybe could have been a good publicity person because I talk so much or <laughs> I could have been a good <laughs> marketing person because I'm, I'm really, I, I love doing that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I could have been a good salesperson again, because I talk so much. Um, I could have been a good production person. Do you know what I mean? Like there are so many, you you should think about the quality mm. you have and the skills that you have. And editorial might not necessarily be the best place for you. Um, and I think, you know, I can't really give you a blow by blow of like what skills will go for what department. Mm. But you know, if you're finding that you're applying for editorial jobs, you're not getting interviews or you are getting interviews, but you're not getting the job, maybe take a second to think, okay, would I, do I, do I want to be a publicist? Do I like talking to people about the books that I love mm. um, and pitching authors to write articles? Do I, is that what I like? Or do I want to be a marketing person where it's a bit more analytical um, and you're kind of doing a lot of like online advertising um, to try and get people to notice the book? Am I more into that kind of number side of stuff? Do I want to go into sales where I'm pitch, I'm right, good with numbers and I'm good at pitching and I love talking to people about books? Do I want to go into production, which is like very much the backseat of uh, publishing? Nobody pays attention to production, but like super important. Mm. Uh, do I want to go into rights? Do I have some sort of like international thing that I can pull on? Do I speak a different language? Mm. It's always really helpful. Do I want to go into finance because I'm like a numbers guy and I know... I know how to do that, but I'll get to work with books, which is really fun. So there's like so many, mm -hmm. all these conversations that I never had. I never had with myself. I just said editorial and that was it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what kind of life I might have had. I might have, have had. What? Yes, what I think I you got it though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if, <clears throat> if I had gone into a different department. Mm -hmm. And so... I just want people to know that editorial is not everything. I work with six to seven different departments, like mm. all I'm constantly emailing them, working with them, very tight knit group of people. Um, just know that editorial is not the end. It's not the, it's not, it's not everything. It's not everything. I like it. It's, I, it's, I think it's a really good bit of advice as well, that 
you, if the main desire is to work with books, that of course there's other other departments that you can look at. But it, it is really good to know, I think, what each department does in order to try and associate what you enjoy doing to it. Um, to it. No, now I've lost my English. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad it's not just me. <laughs> Um, the third thing that you wanted to make sense of was that you won't get paid as much as you want. Right. Let's talk <laughs> some numbers. Okay. Let's have a... He's blowing it open, people. I'm going to be completely honest. And I know that British people hate talking about money. Yes. When I was an intern, I was getting paid £1,200 per month. And my rent was £750, oh. I think. Wow. Gosh. And I had no savings. I didn't know anybody in London. I moved here and I was so poor. I was so mm. desperate that at one point I brought my childhood bike with me from Birmingham to cycle to and from work to save money on the tube. And mm. then it was stolen. So mm. very upsetting for me. <laughs> um, when I got my first job in publishing, caveated by the fact that I, you know, I was outside of London, but I got paid £17,000 a year. And then I got promoted and that went up to 19 and a half. And mm. I had to push, I had to push for that. And I was trying really hard to get 20 and they wouldn't give it to me. So I settled for 19 and a half, but I, that was like a lot of back and forth. Um, and I was on 19 and a half for about a year and a bit until I got my job at Penguin mm. and they offered me 26,000, which at the time seemed like an awful amount of money. Mm. I now know that I could have negotiated my money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could have asked for more, but I just never did. So I got 26,000 when I joined. I am now on just over 28 and I am turning 28 this year. So that's just like depressing, right? Yeah. And you're just not going to get paid as much as you want. And I'm yeah. really going to say it, but, you know, I lived in a flat chair when I moved to London in September 2019. And I was the people in that. One of them worked for a charity. He made 30,000 when I was on 26,000. We were the same age. One of them worked in finance. He was on 35,000, same age. The, uh, the only girl in this, in this house, she earned 45,000. And she was a year younger than me. She worked in mm. finance too. Mm. Um, and there was this, other guy who was like a product manager and I think he earned close to 50 and he was the same age as me so I was living in this house with people who were earning slightly more than me the 30,000 guy all the way to twice as much as me mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there being like I love books and they are <laughs> able to save money for houses if they if they want to do that they are able to you know people say that money doesn't make you happy or anything mm. and fine 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 but you know what money does is give you stability. Mm-hmm. It gives you safety. It, it, I'm, I'm not so much stressed now as I used to be about money. And partly that is because selling a book means that I now have savings for the first time in my mm-hmm. life. That's insane. Um, but not everybody is lucky enough to have that happen to them. So I'm less stressed now. But before that, always thinking about money. Can I afford mm-hmm. to do this thing? Can I afford to do this thing? Can I afford to go home sometimes? Can I afford to go back to Birmingham? And afford that train journey. Um, lots of calculations have to be made, and I'm not the only one. There are so many people in publishing, mm. especially at those lower ends, who are not being paid enough, who are having to having to deal with the fact that so many of us are in our late twenties. I'm 27. So many of us are in this stage now where our peers, our friends who work in different industries, who didn't move to London, are buying houses and getting married, mm. having children. And they are able to afford to do those things, but we are not because we decided five, six, seven years ago that we were going to work in publishing because we loved books and we just mm. don't pay enough. Um, and upward mobility is really hard in publishing. Getting a promotion is really difficult. Most people get a promotion by applying for a different job and then leveraging that mm-hmm. into a promotion at their current work. It's really difficult. And I just want to impart that onto people because, mm. you know, yeah, you love books, but, you, you know, books are not going to feed you. They're not going to pay your rent. They're not going to mm-hmm. give you that small satisfaction of buying like a T-shirt from ASOS if you just want a new T-shirt, but you can't buy the T-shirt because you have to think, where am I going to eat if I buy this 12 mm. 
And so this is the important one to me because put the rejection aside, put, you know, all of that competitiveness, put all of the emotional responsibility, blah, 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 blah. Put all that to the side. What is it that you want from your future? Mm. Are you going to be okay with getting to a point where you're like maybe 30 and you're nowhere near closer to buying a house and Mm. you don't have the money that you would like to maybe go on a holiday or like buy something nice for yourself or something nice for your family or your friends or anyone really? Um, Are you going to be okay with that? Because that Mm. might be your future. That might be the reality of your life. Um, because that's, that's a real hard thing. And I think it's something we do not often talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the worst part about it is that I'm at Penguin, which is one of the better paid companies. Mm-hmm. There are other assistant editors that I know of who are on like 24,000, which is, it's mind blowing that you would put all this work in and not get paid. Especially money. because it's also an industry that, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of expects people to be based in London, which is quite an expensive city. Is that right? Even after lockdown, that it hasn't shifted to a to a role that you could essentially stay where you're from. You'd have to move to quite an expensive city to be on a salary that you've listed. Yeah, I think it's changing slightly in that Hachette mm-hmm. has done, I think they've been like the most forward thinking of the publishing companies here in London. Um, they have offices now, I think, in Bristol, Birmingham, Manchester, Nottingham, mm. Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. I think that's where they have them. So they have them kind of up and down the country. Um, and a lot of their, I think all of their entry-level jobs, although I might be wrong, but it must be the majority of them because everyone that I've seen has it, says you can work at any one of those mm. regional offices. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about, I think for middle management jobs, it kind of varies. They want you a little bit closer to London so you can live in Birmingham or Bristol. Um, but they are open to that conversation. And I I would hope that that continues to happen because, mm. you know, I, during the pandemic, went to go live in Newcastle with a friend of mine. She's from there. She's a teacher. And I sort of moved into, she is able to rent an entire house for less money than I spent <laughs> in one room in London. So mm. I moved into her guest room for nine months and it was maybe the happiest I've ever been <laughs> because for the first time in my life, I didn't have to think about mm. money. And that isn't to say we went insane and bought because <laughs> I, I didn't magically get a million pounds or something, mm. but I didn't have to budget my groceries as much. I didn't have mm. to think about, can I buy this book? because I'll need to afford food. I didn't have to think about those things. And it was really nice to just for a second, let go of that stress and worry that I hadn't even realized I was carrying around with me for so long. Mm-hmm. And then I moved back to London and it all hit me back again. Like mm. for example, um, my bike, which I used to cycle to and from the gym, the I had to replace the tire on it and it only cost me 20 quid. But I was like, can I afford that? Mm-hmm. Can, I, can I afford it? And I thought... I can afford it, thankfully. Okay, let's do it because I need my bike. But, you know, I wouldn't have had to think about that in Newcastle because mm. I would have been able to say, I can afford that 20 quid, let's go. Um, so, yeah, money is a big thing. We do not talk about it as often mm-hmm. as we should. I wish more people were open about it. I wish they would just talk about what salaries they're on. I have absolutely no problem telling people what salary I'm on because mm. I, I'm not embarrassed by it. I'm not ashamed of it. And it can only be helpful to other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially in the context of where you realize that you could have negotiated going into certain roles, um, that the salary that you were given, that that could be negotiated because if more people are open about what they're receiving at that time, at that um, level, then people are able to go in and negotiate with that knowledge. So it's also important for that. It's important when jobs are listed online, that people know what the salary is rather than. Uh, for it to just be stated salary negotiable because it doesn't give anyone a platform to start from. So I agree. And thank you for being open about that because I think that is very hard for people to be honest about their salary and to talk about money. Um, I'm mindful that we've got 10 minutes. But is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we finish up with our last question? Um, 
and not that I can think of right now, but mostly because I think on this Friday afternoon, you've got like blank brain, Kasim. Yeah, no, but you've <laughs> you've given us a lot. So that's blank brain, Kasim, which sounds like a tongue twister. Um, I'm happy with what we've got. I wanted to ask, as I did last time, what your favorite thing is about being an assistant editor. My my favorite thing about being an assistant editor, oh, I've just done that thing where I do this in interviews sometimes where I repeat the question to give myself some time. <laughs> my favorite thing about being You just gave it away if you didn't <laughs> if you didn't tell us what you're doing. Um no, my favorite thing about being an assistant editor is quite honestly the books. And I know that's such a cliched answer and such an expected one, but it is always going to be the books. It's always going to be being able to speak to an author and tell them that I want to buy their book and have mm. conversations with them and see the joy on their face when you tell them what you have lined up and mm-hmm. get a call from them when they say, oh my God, my hardbacks just arrived or my proof copies have just arrived. And seeing that you brought someone's dream to life, like that's insane. Mm. I think, you know, I've I've spoken quite, not, not like badly of publishing, but quite honestly about the hardships of being in publishing. Mm. Some people might wonder why I'm still here. And I, I would say it's because I genuinely love that. And, um, you know, in a, a very lucky position, as I said, where I have savings now because of the book deal and I have mm. all of that going on. So, you know, I kind of am okay. I personally am okay with not being paid as much as my peers because of that. But yeah, it is that joy. It is that enthusiasm, that passion, all of those really good things about books. Mm. Um, and it is also kind of the hopeful hopeful part of me that is like, if I continue working in here and I get promoted, mm. there, maybe I can affect change. Yeah, Maybe I can get high enough to do something about the things that I find are making my life difficult so I can make it easier for people in the mm. future. Um, so yeah, that's what I love about it. And that's, that's the optimist part of me. That's mm. <laughs> no, but it's, I mean, it, the, I think the most important thing to take out of that is also because you have set us up with the context and how, um, how uh, it's a great industry and a great um, thing to be in the world of books, but how that can come crashing down when you look at how much people are getting paid and how to learn to survive through that. But I think that if you do love it and you do have the the motivation and determination to go through, the point is that we do need more people in those senior roles so that things can start to be dismantled or to be changed. And that doesn't happen unless you take that job and persist through that. Not that everyone should, but if you see fit, then that um, is part of what uh, brings change um but I know you have to go so we can end here thank you again for coming on again and I'm sure I'll have you back because there's going to be much more bigger greater news with the uh, good intentions I'm sure hopefully hopefully I would love to be back so I could just have me on as a returning guest yeah <laughs> it'll just be like every fifth podcast will be you yeah <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode of Make It Make Sense with Sarika Tanendra Tharaman, I would love if you would rate, review or subscribe to the podcast to help others find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Make It Make Sense.